we're going to discuss Vladimir Lossky. Is that correct? Yes. And uh, I have, John has introduced me to Lossky, but I thought with Lossky, uh, we could talk a little bit about mysticism, the role of mysticism. I mean, if you had John to characterize the difference between the Church of the East and the Church of the West, how would you do it? I would first try to do this in Watsky's own words, and he's very um, sympathetic to both traditions and says he has no other language but the language of the Eastern Church to express the mystical theology that he wants to talk about, mainly because he is, of course, in the tradition of the Eastern Orthodox Church. He was raised that way. His father was a professor at the University of St. Petersburg, taught theology, actually. So Lossky is steeped in uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, and this is the language he's going to use. If he was going to delineate out the difference between the Western Church and the Eastern Church, he may do that in several ways. One, you could do it historically, but I think that would get very political. Uh, You might do it theologically or doctrinally, but even that probably comes back to the language that's used. So uh, is there anything completely heretical in the Western Church from an Eastern perspective? Probably not. Though there is, of course, the issue of the filioque, but I don't think that anybody's going to completely call somebody a heretic based upon something that... uh, Now, uh, explain the difference between the, the Eastern and Western notion of the filioque. So the filioque is a clause in Western creeds, literally meaning and son. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, whereas the Eastern Church just says that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. And what would be the significance in theologically in that difference? A Western Church would say the Bible says that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So you have to have the Eastern Church appeals to... Uh, almost an aesthetic idea of balance in the Trinity. And uh, in, in that, then, does that interpret, does that translate into a, a, a difference in practice? I don't think so, that there's much of a difference in practice besides simply the reciting of the creeds on that particular instance. There is, of course, a different traditions of mysticism in each church, mm-hmm. and perhaps that's one uh, example or instance of language factoring in to the difference. Well, I know in Lossky that when he begins to talk about the Holy Spirit, and I, I thought that, that his description was accurate, that whereas the, you know, Jesus says, if you've seen me, if you've seen the Father, that there's the one revealing the other, but uh, the, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, the, whole, the work of the Holy Spirit then is involved in uh, the revealing of the, the, the Father and the Son, but there is no revelation of the person of the Holy Spirit uh, per se, independent of the Father and the Son. Yes, that's true. Uh, to recite Irenaeus crudely, it's the Son who leads us to the Father, and the Holy Spirit leads us to the Son that we might be led to the Father. And so each is revealing the other, but the work of the Holy Spirit then is known only through the work of the Spirit in the Father and the Son and mm-hmm. not independently. Which I guess brings us to the you know, the the issue. I think there is clearly a different atmosphere. And I, I don't know that 
uh, in the end that we can pin it down doctrinally, but it certainly has to do with the mystical element in the two churches, and that's what the the work that I've read of Lossky is, what, what's the name of the book? The Mystical Theology of the Eastern Church. And so what Lossky is is trying to spell out, and first of all, I thought the the job of spelling it out is itself commendable, and that is that what is a legitimate and what is an illegitimate mysticism, and what he, in the beginning of that book, wants to note is that uh, in affirming a kind of mysticism, we do not want to fall into the errors of Gnosticism, uh, which in fact seem to revolve around a mystical mm-hmm. apprehension of the divine. Yeah, and not that Lofsky would necessarily call the Western Church Gnostic, but I think one of the critiques that he poses implicitly is that in the western tradition you have mysticism bracketed out as its own tradition separate from everything else almost there's an intellectual way of talking about god there's a mystical way of approaching god whereas in the eastern church or at least what Lossky is saying is that all of it can be called mystical in the sense that if we're contemplating scripture or we're contemplating doctrines or we actually are, in his mind, having a mystical experience. All of that, or an ecstatic experience, all of that comes together to form the mystical theology of the Eastern Church. And there needs to be balance so you can't overplay any of uh, one aspect of theology against another. And I think the way he says it in the introduction is that where there is no mysticism, there can't be theology. Yeah. And where there's no theology that is a, a clear spelling out of doctrine, there can't be mysticism of a legitimate sort. And he's specifically using the word dogma, and so he really is talking very specifically about what can we say about God. And with apart from what we can say about God, there is no language that's either cataphatic, we're saying positive things about God, nor apophatic, we're saying negative things about God, if we don't have that a conversation within the confines of what the apostles have taught about what it means to be human and who Jesus is and all of that placed back into who God is. And this is my, uh, kind of my uh, problem here, and I don't know that either the Eastern or the Western Church uh, has sorted this out in the way that, at least at this point, I would want to sort it out. And that is that if you study, in other words, if you go into other religious traditions, like I was in Japan and I'm familiar with Zen Buddhism, and but what I think is characteristic not just of Zen but of mysticism, maybe just of the religions of you know the Eastern tradition, but maybe just, uh, and that is that there is a mystical element to it that is completely. In other words, it's apophatic, but it's absolutely apophatic. And the absolute part means that that is the the thing that is, in a sense, the center of the religion is precisely that thing that is impenetrable. If you could articulate it, understand it uh, at some level, well, then that's not it. (laughs) That's not it. Yeah. Yeah, and that's monistic. And, and whatever that monad is, yeah. we don't know, we don't have access. So that we're trying to be dissolved into the one. Which, to if you, you know, coming from a kind of Lacanian perspective, what is set up 
in a mystical, the mystical tradition, or in simply in biblical idolatry, is that you know that there is this uh, kind of impenetrable other, the law, mm-hmm. the idol, uh, and and that thing then uh, is really just I think a reflection of the fall of man that we're alienated, and that alienation or that that we create an absence mm-hmm. in the alienation, and by reifying the absence, you know, calling it nothingness, and by nothingness mean, meaning an absolute something, mm-hmm. all you're doing is, in a sense, you end up deifying a form of alienation and mm-hmm. complete otherness. That has to be transgressed. The that it is by its very nature uh, built upon transgression. Mm-hmm. And Solowski is saying that's illegitimate in the sense that he says with Christianity you have a Trinitarian God. It's not monistic. God is other to us in the sense that he's uncreated and we don't share that nor will we understand God as he understands himself. But God has created us for himself and for ourselves. He is our God. And so that in Lasky's conception of a Christian mysticism, there is never the dissolution of the subject into a one. But actually, the subject always will have to stand before God and can only hope through the Eastern Orthodox category of theosis or deification, same thing, becoming like God, to achieve the likeness of God. And that is, of course, the work of the Holy Spirit. And if we can take what I just said, in other words, if you agree with what I just said, that an absolute apophaticism is paganism. Uh, And any tendency then to absolutize the other, uh, however you get there, then we've in some way passed from Christianity to paganism. Mm Mm-hmm. And why Christianity is different is because though God is other than us, because we are his creation, he has created us by, our, by his grace, and that grace is still at work in our lives. And we cannot delineate the parameters of that grace. In other words, the danger is if we draw a line and we say, here's what we can know of God, and here's what we can't know of God, the danger I'm afraid is that we fall back into once again, making the impenetrable, mm-hmm. the uh, you know the absolute mm-hmm. other, you know I'm thinking Zizek mm-hmm. and Lacan here, uh, that what you would do with that absolute impenetrable other, it turns out is that's the mm-hmm. the law or that's oh. the the thing that's the monster uh, that in a sense we both hate and love. And Lasky would say that would be conceptualizing God. Run that down for us, and, and why he's then against the Western scholastic understanding. Well, he's in a sense against one understanding of the Western church. I don't think he would, I don't think he's just against Western Christianity or even all Western mysticism or anything like that. But the idea that you could pose formal, rational arguments, and of course that may have meant something different at different times during the Western church, but by the time you get to modernity, that you could pose formal rational arguments to either prove or disprove the existence of God. You're talking in terms of human concepts of 
I mean, being or essence or existence or whatever it may be, but they're human concepts being foisted upon God. And so Lotsky, along with the Eastern tradition, would say that's not our place. Our place is to worship and pray and follow. And so this is how he binds together the apophatic and the cataphatic, or a positive and a negative theology, but balanced along with dogma and tradition and uh, a lot of other things. In the sense that if we do say something that God is not, that also allows us to say something that God is. Not that we come to conceptualize God, for we're trying specifically not to conceptualize God, but that does not either mean that we worship nothing or nothingness, but rather, as Lofsky says, quoting scripture, God dwells in darkness, meaning that where God is is going to be beyond the grasp of human rationality, but God is the light that shines into our darkness, and so God participates with us in our understanding of him, hence the Trinitarian nature of a Christian mysticism, and it's not uh, the human subject before the monistic other, but rather it's the Christian subject before the Trinity, the Trinitarian God who has become like us in the flesh, and then the Trinitarian God that indwells us through the power of the Holy Spirit, such that we have a relationship that's dynamic. And that's a lot of Lasky's point, that regardless of what form the mysticism might take, it's mysterious in the sense that we are becoming like God, and this is happening to us, both of our own will and volition, but it also takes an excess of our will to become like God. It is God working with us, we working with God. It's in the sense of communion, or it's conversational, it's dynamic. So, the, I mean, this was the, the most of what he's describing, I, I thought, was you know clearly over and against a kind of illegitimate Gnostic understanding. So he, when he's talking about mystery... He's talking about the unfolding of a mystery in and through the Trinity. Um, and that the work of the Son then. But then, and I, I, this is not just a problem of the Church of the East, but it seems to be both a, a kind of a universal problem, is that having said that we do not want to you know, create a con- concept of God, but then proceed to describe uh, God's working in a unilateral fashion in and through energetics or energy. And in some way, what Lossky, as a good Eastern Orthodox theologian, is attempting to do is to delimit the revelation of God to one aspect of God, namely energetics. Now explain to me why I've misunderstood there. I think that the Eastern Orthodox Church talks about God's action in history, the work of God through history for the benefit of humankind as his energies, and as it comes from the Greek. What he means by that is that we do understand God having come to us. We understand that, though, in creaturely terms. Do those creaturely terms and those creaturely concepts participate and who God is and his uncreatedness, absolutely, you can't, uh, you would not want to make those two categories mutually exclusive. But even through knowing God in his energies, we do not know God in his fullness. And so I I think there would be a way of saying this that is, uh, you know, we, we could say that it's a legitimate understanding, but I also think there is a danger here 
of falling back into the sort of distinction you get between the economic trinity and the imminent trinity so that we only deal with God in terms of the economy of redemption or in an Eastern understanding in, the, in and through God's energies. Well, actually, what you just said is a Protestant understanding. This is Luther. So a uh, form of nominalism uh, that would say in Christ we only know uh, God in his revelation, in his createdness, but God still remains hidden to us. And that's precisely what's not happening in the Eastern theology. That when they're talking energies, they're not saying, they're not in, in any way delineating uh, an aspect of God that we know is hidden, but rather the energies are simply the way in which God reveals himself yes, to us. Yes. And I, I think that, that if that is the understanding, uh, I mean, this, then you, you don't have to resort, you know, uh, to Rahner's rule, the economic trinity is the eminent trinity. Uh, as I understand it... Which could be too strong, depending on how you explain it, I guess. Right, right, that you wouldn't want to equate yeah. those two things. But the issue, do you, want to, you, do you want to absolutely differentiate between what has been revealed to us in Christ and who God is in the eminent trinity? Yeah, absolutely not. And perhaps in Lofsky, we just see the beauty of the Eastern Church that that's never been a problem like it has been in the West. Uh, and, and, and that then, does it translate, or in fact, are we just off on another subject to talk about Eastern mysticism or the Eastern mystic tradition? Because there, um, it seems that some of this I would be a little suspicious of in the in, in other words, my understanding is that mystery is the unfolding of God's mystery to us in and through the person and work of Christ. But if we imagine that we have access to the mystery of God through an interior journey or through an ecstatic experience, exclusive of the person and work. And I'm afraid that sometimes is reflected in the practices, not just of these, but... Yeah. And I I mean, I guess if one wanted to defend the Eastern tradition, you'd just simply say, yeah, that's not normative. Uh, give us some examples of what you think would be an illegitimate mystic uh, practice. I think certain forms of the Aramaic tradition and uh, certain, you know, absolutizing asceticism and completely shutting oneself off from the world to journey into the self to find God, uh, you're not going to do that without the church. And so, depending on the varying degrees that's happened, it has happened historically, there's plenty of historic figures. Uh, I'm skeptical, and I think it's okay to be a bit skeptical, not to question their Christianity, uh, Simply, I'm, I'm skeptical of what fruit that actually bears. And, may, and this discussion takes place you know, with the context behind us of a, the church in the North America, in which there's great interest now in, in mystical practices, you know, con contemplative prayer. and Not necessarily Christian. Not necessarily Christian, yeah. that they're right out of the East. And, uh, you know, the, if, as I've related in a blog recently, you know, I asked somebody that was coming in to teach on the mystical, the church 
fathers, the desert fathers. I just taught on Zen Buddhism, and I said, well, let's begin by distinguishing between legitimate and illegitimate forms of mysticism. And he said, well, I can't do that. I have never even thought of that. I think that's sort of the state of the church in, in at least this country, is that there is just a wholesale uh, acceptance of the mystical practices mm-hmm. without any clear delineation of what might be legitimate or illegitimate. Mm-hmm. And so in this conversation, uh, in other words, uh, while Lasky and the Eastern, they, there's a clear understanding, at least in his presentation, mm-hmm. well, here's, here's what's legitimate and here's not. And yet that does not seem to have in any way uh, guided the, the practice away from uh, a completely ascetic interior notion of the divine. I say, well, normatively it has. That uh, normatively for the Eastern Church, uh, you know, everyone is not a mystic. And so, by and large, being a Christian means simply worshiping at church, reading scripture, following scripture, and coming to God in and through that way corporately. So it is definitely a minority position of an absolute asceticism. And so going back to what you said earlier, what you're uh, and defending, and I'm, I think uh, that I'm agreeing, is that you have a mystical tradition in the West that, in fact, is completely cut off, in a sense, has fallen into at least privileges yeah. mysticism, and maybe uh, I don't know if we have to even blame the mystics. Perhaps uh, it's just a reaction to rationalism that was present in the West. It's not so much present in the East in the same way, anyway. And Lasky does a great job of saying that even though there's a shared vocabulary between the Eastern Church and the Western Church, using the same vocabulary isn't a result out of understanding God through Greek philosophical concepts, but simply speaking the intellectual language of their day and their era. So he's specifically talking about. Uh, Basil the Great and Gregory of Nyssa and Gregory of Nazianzus and explaining that yes they use a lot of language that you can find in Plotinus but they certainly aren't Neoplatonists they're actually very much not Neoplatonists and there's two forms of mysticism that are being distinguished whereas in the West there is a uh, complete awareness of trying to define God and find God uh, maybe more completely than they ought to have had at certain points in the constructs and concepts of Greek philosophy. Not to say that there isn't some truth there, but that uh, is privileged an intellectual form or rational form of Christianity, and then you have a reaction against that, which would be an absolute mystical form of Christianity. And, you know, the way that I, I think this works itself out is that these things need not be polar opposites mm-hmm. that you know, the, the absolute rationalism and, a, and a, a kind of absolute mysticism go, in a strange way, go hand in mm-hmm. hand. And that, and I think Anselm of Canterbury is always my prime example, but maybe just because I happen to be more familiar with him. But he seems to be uh, specifically using rational thought, rational arguments, in a kind of Wittgensteinian picture of things to climb you know, the ladder of reason 
But eventually, with the goal of kicking the ladder of reason out from under you and having an experience, an ineffable experience of God, that the rational arguments have carried you to a mystical experience, and yet the two things are not necessarily interconnected. Which, uh, you know, the way you picture that is... The Areopagite, as Lasky is using his literature, is just the very opposite. Instead of building a ladder upon rational thought and, and, ele- and constructs in that way, uh, you actually, along your pursuit to experiencing God, remove your own concepts in lieu of concepts that fit within, and you have to say that fit within the paradigm set by the apostles or something like that, but you're denying conceptualizing God and then you have the experience of the divine. And not not in the sense of, oh, I've seen God and I've seen nothing, but in the sense that we come to a place where we might acknowledge uh, who we are in front of a God who is so much greater and bigger than us. And so he ties the concept of mysticism always to theosis. Theosis is something that we do, not something that God does. So it's not having a mystical experience where God shows up, it is, but it is rather being conformed to the likeness of God. So, and that's the that's the part of this that I think I like that uh, that there that mysticism is talking about a continual transformation of the individual. Mm-hmm. That as we you know that as we connect our uh, understanding of the mystery to the logos, mm-hmm. uh, the mystery is continually translating. Uh, it, uh, it, it, it itself into mm-hmm. the the uh, the person uh, you know to to whom the revelation is occurring. It's embodied, yeah, and and so what you get in a I'm never sure you know between the you know our whole discussion here of East and West. You know, I think we can, in a legitimate way, talk about a Eastern Orthodox tradition and a Catholic Roman Catholic tradition. But if you take a broader understanding of this, just the the East and the West, we often distinguish these two things. Uh, you know, the East is mystical. The mm-hmm. East is well. Well, I think that in fact those those two categories uh, in Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. In Martin Heidegger, uh, that they yeah, there's no there's no difference that what Hegel is doing uh, is no different than what uh, is happening in the East. Heidegger and Kitado Nishida, of course, recognize this. They're contemporaries, and so Nishida is doing Zen Buddhism. Heidegger is just sort of the end of a rational mystic tradition. And it's hard to distinguish those two guys. So this discussion of, you know, uh, uh, maybe a a different ethos to the Eastern Church, yes. But in the end, I think the categories, whenever I use the the, written language of East and West, I never capitalize that. Because the point is, I think we have tended to reify these two things, rationalism, and mysticism as if they are in some way uh, polar opposites, Mm -hmm. 
But my understanding is the way that they've worked themselves out, and will always, in other words, necessarily work themselves out, is that the mystical is an absolute apophaticism. And that is the danger, at least that, mm-hmm. uh, that was what I appreciated about what Lossky is Yes, about. yeah, he is tying mysticism to Bhagavan. And uh, the, 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 there is then uh, a continual, you know, if you think in the New Testament of the unfolding, that Paul talks a lot mm-hmm. about the mystery. Mm-hmm. But to my understanding, the mystery is precisely the opposite in the New Testament in its results. What is the result? You know, first of all, what is the mystery that Paul's talking about? Well, it's the mystery of the unity that is accomplished through Christ between Jew and Gentile. And of course, Paul's not talking simply about that unity, but he's talking about a unification, an overcoming of alienation uh, that is to characterize the, mm-hmm. the church. Whereas if you think of the typical practices mm-hmm. and results of a mystical understanding, you don't get unity with other people or with God. In fact, God is pictured, uh, I think, as an absolute other, mm-hmm. and the practices of surrounding that understanding of God are isolating mm-hmm. And, in fact, turn you inward rather than outward. To abolish subjectivity, to abolish the person. And uh, it takes persons to be in community with other persons. It takes persons to unify with other persons. And all that begins to come apart. And so maybe our, our picture of the Eastern Church is precisely wrong. That, you know, we often, uh, that the in critic, being critical of the mystical tradition... The way you're picturing it, it's a much more healthy. Yeah. And so, of course, I, mean, I think anybody listening could, if you were against mysticism completely, you would just start pointing out individuals in the Eastern Church that um, are very mystical in the sense of almost you can't distinguish between the mysticism they practice and um, Buddhist. But that's certainly not the normative case. And I think that even Lasky is very generous in the sense that he's not saying or privileging the Eastern Orthodox Church over everything else. He's simply saying this is the horizon from which he speaks. So he's not saying that there's some kind of secret, you know, uh, uh, secret aspect of the Eastern Church that makes it better and they've got all this figured out. He's definitely not saying that at all. I remember when I first encountered it in Anselm, I'd studied enough Buddhism, and I thought, man, this just sounds like something, right? And that is that his recommendation to the monks at Beck uh, in practicing, in other words, he's, he's wanting them to practice the meditation on the ontological argument. He, he actually does this in mm-hmm. both the monologion and the proslogion. He says, go into your cell, you know, your room, and close the door, and now go into the room of your mind and close the door and empty your mind. Um, and in the monologion, he, when he, what he's describing is the way you arrive at the encounter with God. And the way you arrive at the encounter with God is through a complete uh, turn inward in which actually what needs to happen is uh, thinking in some way ceases 
so that one experiences the moment of being self-identical with the self, mm-hmm. so that you completely or you rightly remember who you are, you know, thinking here of Augustinian yeah. notion of De Trinitate, of the Trinity. And I, and I notice Lasky criticizes uh, Augustine's picture of a completely interior mm-hmm. or personal, you know, his illustration of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. But it just it just seemed like uh, that there in the in as much as Anselm, you know, is the father of a scholastic tradition, that what is set up there then is very much on the order. And he's you know who's more rational than Anselm, mm-hmm. yeah. and yet who's more mystical? Yeah. That's good. So can, talk a little bit about you know I noticed that Lasky does this in his treatment of the Trinity. Uh, that there does seem to be a distinction then uh, in the notion of the outworkings of the Trinity uh, in in terms of that uh, Christ is continually revealing the Father. Yeah, yeah I, uh, I would actually just go to Irenaeus because I've recently written on him and enjoy the way he pictures this, the metaphor that he uses is the hands of God. So every event of God is really an event of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The hands of God, or God's action in history, and he's taking the metaphor directly from the Old Testament. The finger of God does something. The hand of God does something. Anthropomorphized. Well, for Irenaeus, Jesus is one hand of God, and the Spirit is the other. And he plays image and likeness. Well, not that's not the way right way to say that. He deals in the terminology of image and likeness. Lossky does the same thing, and that's to say that by virtue of being created, which is the work of uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through the Word or the Son specifically, you have the image. There's already a uh, correspondence between the created and the uncreated God. But that image is specifically created to correspond to the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so the image is what we share with the true human being who had not come into the world yet. And then the work of the Spirit is to bring us to the likeness, which is uh, lost, not that it was had in full, nor can it ever be had in full, but the likeness that was had in the garden and the image in some way are lost in the sense that we no longer have a right relationship with God that these things, or that we are growing in terms of image and likeness. Whereas with Christ, you have the image before us that we can follow. That's, again, a new creation, or directly corresponds to creation. And with the Spirit comes uh, the guidance into the likeness of God. Not, again, likeness of God just as the likeness of Christ, but likeness of God in the sense of, we become like the Trinitarian God, and maybe that has implications for corporate worship. There's more than one of us in this. And so this is a what is later then called theosis, this process that Irenaeus is describing. We grow into the likeness. So this is Lofsky's conception of the Trinity. The Trinity is continuously at work, but as Trinity, not in some Hegelian notion of one than the other. You know, uh, What's that? That's... Uh, Uh, modalism. Uh, It's not modalistic in any sense. And so you have this growth of the human being as the creation of God, but that growth only takes place because of God as Trinity present to us. And part of that's mysterious. 
to us. We're not constantly aware of how the Holy Spirit is growing us and leading us into the likeness of God. And so what, I mean, in the end, you get an interesting difference all through the Eastern Church in terms of the way that reason and uh, theology are going to interplay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, maybe mysticism is the wrong word mm-hmm. uh, because it seems like there's just a, a different emphasis on the, the weight that you can mm-hmm. put on reason. I think Lofsky would chuckle at us at this point and say, well, we think it's the wrong word because we're not from the Eastern tradition. And they just have a different way of speaking. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, I think in terms of hard and fast orthodoxy, yeah, I mean the Western Church and the Orthodox Church share the same orthodoxy belief about Christ and the way we follow him, but you're definitely right in the sense that the way the life of the church is lived looks a bit different. Some of that may be cultural, some of it uh, may be remaining more true to the church that was founded by the apostles uh, in practice. Well, in in as much as the Eastern Church avoided scholasticism, Mm -hmm. and with scholasticism, uh, I mean, I I don't suppose anybody avoided modernity, but... (laughs) Russia did longer than most. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, for good and ill. Yes. So the... the, 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 um, but uh, modernity in in uh, theological terms mm-hmm. uh, seems to to you know that passes through yeah. uh, Descartes yeah. and Kant and uh, ultimately Hegel. It it uh, and that theology has been sucked into that in one fashion or another and has been defined then uh, in a peculiar fashion by the philosophical. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, philosophical, theological has not been separate in the, in the West. Perhaps it's hubris. This is the original sin recapitulated over and over and over again. This scholasticism in itself is a nice way of arguing, a way of writing. But what immediately happens is the idea, and then, of course, progresses into, develops into modernity, is that we can conceptualize God. We can rationalize theology. We can do this because... And the idea of progress and all this is wrapped up together. And so the enlightenment, the idea that we are the pinnacle of the universe and we can uh, reason about it. And, you know, you eventually get to the point where you don't even think you need God. And so we just leave that behind and continue to think that we're reasoning through things. And then you, ironically, you know, the the distinct, the interplay here between, uh, you know, the deus absconditis mm-hmm. of, of uh, Protestant Lutheranism mm-hmm is a kind of re- reaction that is God is completely hidden mm-hmm. in a rejection of scholasticism so that you get this tragic kind of uh, interplay in which it continues to be reason and mm-hmm. mysticism in some way pitted against one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know that anybody would characterize Lutheranism as a mysticism. Well, it's a, actually it's... Pure reason is what it ends up being. Non-reason. Yeah, that it's uh, it's a a reason that falls short of apprehending God. Yeah. And so there is no there is no mystical element to it, and it's not clear what's yeah. left. And so I I was thinking as we were talking, how do we recapture an authentic and legitimate mysticism? 
Well, I believe in some ways the last century has seen that in attempts to reappropriate the patristics and the early medieval theologians. And maybe all of them have fallen short. But in some sense, there has been a return or a, a realization that the type of rationalism that becomes so prevalent in modernity is absolute rationalism, is pure reason, or, uh, and then a belief in pure nature because of a belief in pure reason simply will not work and does fall short of well, let's, apprehending us. Let's define our terms here a little bit. Uh, what, by pure nature, explain what pure nature is and why that's problematic. Uh, through nature, apart from grace, mm-hmm. we have access to knowledge of God. And notice, knowledge of God is privileged, because you're obviously not going to experience God in that sense without knowledge. And so, who's who's positing the notion of pure nature? I think everybody in the West, post... Uh, oh, I need to say this very carefully. Uh, during the modern era. Mm-hmm. And that hangs on today, in some circles. And this is the reaction of, in Catholicism, the Nouvelle mm-hmm. theology... Um, I guess there would be many reactions. Yes, yeah. I mean, you've seen it in the Church of England, you've seen it in the Catholic Church. Other people have warmed up to the idea of trying to recapture a Christianity that is not so bound up by modernity. Other than theological liberalism. <laughs> or fundamentalism. <laughs> fundamentalism <laughs> yeah. and theological liberalism. Two sides of the same coin. Am I, am I wrong there that what you still have... Uh, hanging on in the Western Church is the, you got a, a, a healthy theological liberalism that seems bound by the modernity that mm-hmm. defines it. Yeah, and I would say fundamentalism as well, same thing. It is yeah. just modernity <laughs> still hanging on the idea that we can do this through pure reason. Either, and, and again, it's not just the pure reason, but theological liberalism has always tended to, to do both. In other words, there is the idea of uh, a kind of mystical experience, but that mystical, you know, the uh, you know, in uh, the idea of Schleiermacher. It's so ineffable. I'm not sure they believe in it. Yes, <laughs> that's a joke, but <laughs> it's a dependence yes, upon yeah, God. Yeah. It's uh, it's yeah. something we can't articulate. It's this yeah. feeling that we have, and so it's never just that there is the the kind of uh, trust in reason, but in fact, I've always seen mm-hmm. the two things as going hand That's in true. hand. True. That there is simultaneous with a kind of rationalism, mm-hmm. uh, you know, rationalistic approach, mm-hmm. a scientific, mm-hmm. you know, higher critical approach to scripture, uh, in which you, you know, you uh, you're, you're te- yeah. tearing apart the authority of scripture. But then what you're left with, and ironically, is something on the order of a complete apophatic mysticism, experientialism. And fundamentalism, uh, same you, you can describe the same, same sorts of elements that there is a rationalistic side to it, but then also a, a kind of experientialism that is not guided in the least by doctrine or theology. It's God's will. We can't explain it. We don't know why it doesn't fit with the Bible, but it's, it's God's will. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so it, it almost is as much, a, yeah. as much hubris as anything else. 
Well, John, thank you for the discussion. Have we have we covered Lossky? Sure. Oh, not. definitely not. <laughs> Perhaps we've covered some of the Eastern uh, theology, the mystical theology of the Eastern Church. Okay. Thank you, John. Thank you.